If you have your Bibles, you might turn to the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible or on your phone or your iPad or whatever you're reading the Bible on these days, it's all good. This is actually our fifth weekend in the, um, in the sixth chapter of John. You know, we're making our way through the Gospel of John, uh, passage by passage, verse by verse. Uh, we uh, started back beginning of the year. I think we'll be done... Uh, June of next year. We take a little bit of time to kind of go through this book. Um, so this is our fifth weekend in John chapter 6. You may remember it's kind of been a little while. Um, when chapter 6 begins, everything's really hectic in uh, the ministry with Jesus. Uh, crowds have been following him. It says that they were so busy that they didn't even have time really to eat or to sleep. And so Jesus decides he needs to get the disciples away for a couple days, get a little retreat, a little downtime. So they get in a boat, they're going to go across the lake, but the crowds uh, figure out where they're going in advance and they, they're waiting for them when they come ashore. And so when Jesus sees them, it says that, that he had compassion for them because they were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he spends the day teaching them and, and healing. And at the end of the day, um, there are thousands of people who are still there, and uh, they're getting hungry. And the disciples can see kind of an issue brewing, and so they tell Jesus, you need, to, you need to send the crowds home, like send them off to the local towns to go to Chick-fil-A and get something to eat. And Jesus turns around and says, no, you give them something to eat, which is kind of funny because they have nothing uh, to give uh, to eat. And so you know the story. We talked about the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children. 10, 15,000 people. It's this crazy miracle. And at the end of it, the people are so impressed by what they saw that they want um, to take Jesus and make him their king by force. Problem is, they want to make him not the kind of king that he came to be, a king who came to conquer sin and death and to establish the kingdom of God. They wanted to make him merely a political military king. So Jesus uh, knowing what's coming, he takes the disciples, puts them in a boat, sends them to the other side of the lake. He dismisses the crowds. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And um, hours later, the disciples are trying to get across the lake, across the Sea of Galilee, but there's a storm, um, and the winds are contrary, and they can't quite get across, and Jesus comes walking to them in the fourth watch on the water. <laughs> when they see him, of course, they're freaking out. They think that he's a ghost. Um, he, you know, he comes near to them, don't be afraid. Peter jumps out on the water, sinks, they get in the boat. They worship him, and uh, then they get to the shore. The crowds track them down, and uh, Jesus tells them that what they need is more than physical food. They need a food that brings eternal life. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking specifically about that concept, that the bread of life. And they ask him how, and he says that they must believe in him. And when he says that they must believe in him, they say, well, give us a sign, um, right? Moses gave us a sign from, from heaven when he brought down manna from heaven for our forefathers. And um, ironically enough, Jesus had, says, yeah, you know, that, that manna pointed to me. It pointed to my coming. I, I'm the fulfillment of that, he says. Yeah, he says, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And anyone who believes in, in me, Jesus says, will have eternal life. To which it says, they grumbled. <laughs> so they didn't like that. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this week. I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, we're going to walk through this passage. And we're going to do it uh, with a loaf of bread and a remote control. So that should get us where we want to go. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for 
bringing us here today. And I thank you, Father, that even though we may have uh, had uh, food this morning, physical food, for our bodies, we are here now to receive food for our souls. And Father, I know that I am not capable of delivering that food. Only your Spirit can do it for us. And so I pray now that we would um, clear our minds of the things that might distract us and that we would set our thoughts upon you. And that as your spirit teaches us, we would embrace and receive that word. And so I pray for us now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there's a uh, periodical I like to read called Fast Company. Most of the stuff in Fast Company is not worth reading. But uh, every now and then, I come across something that's kind of interesting. And a few weeks ago, they had an article. And the, the, the title kind of got my attention. It's called The Surprising Benefit of Learning to Resist the Urge to Skip the Tough Stuff. Kind of a long title, but got my attention. And basically, at the beginning of the article, the author talks about a movie. I didn't, I'm not even sure when this movie came out. It was called Click. Did anybody see the movie Click with Adam Sandler? Besides me, I mean, I remember seeing it. It was a long time ago. Uh, most of you, you're way too spiritual to watch movies, so I get it. Um, but basically, in the movie, Adam Sandler plays a guy named Michael Newman, and he's a workaholic architect who has really been sacrificing his family. He, he's not good at drawing boundaries and finding uh, balance in life. And so, uh, one day, the remote control for the TV isn't working, and he needs to get a replacement, so he goes to Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, where they have everything. They just charge way too much for it. And so he goes there, and while he's there, he meets this character uh, played by Christopher Walken, who's this eccentric kind of uh, uh, technician, and um, he gives him this remote control, not this one, but a remote control that um, is magical. Uh, with it, you can skip forward uh, in life, and you can skip through things that you really don't want to go through. Conversations and difficult situations, meetings, chores, work projects, and all that. Now, you can pause it, and you can go backwards, but you can't actually go back and relive anything. You can only go back and see things. Um, and so, anyways, he, he gets this uh, remote control, and he begins to fast forward through things. He's in a conversation he doesn't like, and he fast forward through it. Uh, he's got a work deadline coming up. He fast forwards through that, and eventually he skips four decades of his life, and he realizes that he missed out, of course, on it's one of those meaningful parts of life, and it's Hollywood, and so he goes back and meets Christopher Walken again, who says, oh, you can go back and start all over again if you want, but without the remote, which, of course, he does. Now, the author of the article goes on to kind of explain a little bit about why he mentions the movie. He talks about something he calls skipping through life. He says in the book uh, entitled What We Owe the Future, author William McAskill cites a survey of 8,500 respondents by a team of psychologists. McAskill describes the survey this way. He says, at random times, people were asked to write down what activity they were doing at the moment and how long they thought it would last, and then to respond to this question. If you could, and it had no negative consequences, would you jump forward in time to the end of what you're currently doing? That is, they asked participants to imagine having the option of simply not experiencing those still doing whatever activity they were engaged in at the moment. So imagine if they were making a cup of tea, they would imagine that they could blink and their next experience would be drinking the cup of tea that they had just made, but they didn't actually have to make it. And the researchers called this uh, experience skipping, or we might call it fast 
40. Now, there are a lot of results from the survey, but I wanted to just point out a couple of them to you. Participants said the following things. They said, first of all, at the end of the story, that they would choose to skip roughly 40% of their life. Now think about that for a minute. As they thought back, they're like, yeah, I mean, if I could, if I could do it, there's about 40% of my life, I would just skip altogether. Which to me was, I don't know, it was absolutely shocking to read that. They said that 60% of their good experiences were canceled out by the bad. Think about that for a minute. More than 10% of participants said that their negative experiences outweighed their positive. That life was more negative than it was positive. Now, there's a lot of things that the author distills out of this, but I wanted to mention something in particular. The author of the article goes on to say this. He says, how much of my day would I skip if the things I needed to do would still get done? Off the top of my head, maybe 30%. I'd skip all the soul-crushing business meetings, commutes and flights, the, the rushes to meet deadlines. That's not to mention the health scares, the errands, the chores, the conflicts, the creative blocks, and pretty much all administrative tasks. There's just so many things I would skip. And then he talks about three approaches. So what do we do if there's a tendency for many of us to want to do that or, you know, kind of we mentally do that? And he says, here are kind of the three most common approaches to reducing the desire to skip. First one is try to make it fun. So he says, you know, if you're doing an errand, you can listen to a podcast, listen to music. If you go to the grocery store, maybe you can take a friend with you. But at the end of this, he says, you know, this is really still skipping, right? Because we're not really doing that thing. We're not really entered into that thing. There's a second approach, which he calls avoid, delegate, or outsource. So you know, hire an executive assistant for your administrative work, if you can do that kind of thing. Hire a cook to make your food. Hire someone to, you know, clean your house. Hire someone to take care of your kids or walk the dog or just get rid of some things altogether. Again, he says, you're basically skipping life. The third thing is this. You need to change your mindset. He writes this, ask yourself whether any experiences were skipping. Maybe we should learn to appreciate the small stuff more like going to the gym. This is really the key. We can set up all the guardrails we want, sweet and boring tasks by making them fun, avoiding other boring tasks, but these are all temporary solutions. At some point, we will not be able to avoid some tasks, and we will need to decide how to make, as he says, the juice worth the squeeze. So in John chapter 6, we have these people. There are thousands of them that are following Jesus, and they want to see miracles, and they want free lunches, and they want to see healings and see Jesus control the weather. But when Jesus begins to say things like, he is the, the bread that came out of heaven, right? they, want to, they want to skip that. They don't want to hear that. Give us another lunch. Give us another miracle. When he says things like, they must believe in him in order to come to the Father, they make it clear they don't want to, where's the skip button, right? They don't want to, they don't want to hear that. When he claims to be one with God, when he claims that he can grant eternal life, when he says that he is the bread of the life, they don't want to hear it. They want to skip this thing. So again, picking up our story in John chapter 6, verse 51, it says this, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Now, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, you know, we understand looking back exactly what Jesus meant, but people were confounded at the moment. They didn't know what he was, what he was talking about. Now, he's going to give a physical illustration to make a spiritual point, right? 
Parables do that. We do that all the time. So he's going to say, think of a loaf of bread. Most of us, we like bread. Bread's pretty good stuff. You probably wish you had this right now. Right? A physical illustration of a physical truth. Right? We are physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. There is a material part to us, but there is an immaterial part of us as well. We call it the soul or the spirit. Bread in that day represented in general food. It was the most common food that people would know. So when Jesus talks about bread, they know what he's talking about. He's talking about feeding your body. The body requires physical food to exist. You probably noticed that. You, you got to eat and then eat again and again and again. But he says this, this, well, it provides benefit for the body. It provides no benefit whatsoever for the soul. Jesus says he is the food that feeds the soul. Verse 52. Now the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're not arguing with Jesus now. They're arguing with each other about what he could possibly mean. And one person says, I think he means this, and someone else this. But you have to understand, they're all basically mocking him. The tone is mocking. None of them believe him. Right, so they're just kind of arguing amongst themselves. And so Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and, so he's going to add some more here, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, some commentators, scholars through the years have, have said, you know, oh, Jesus is talking about communion here. Certainly it foreshadows the idea of communion, the, the bread or the flesh and the blood or the cup. Uh, it's interesting if you go through John, John actually never talks about the Lord's Supper or communion as we know it. The problem is if you think that he's talking about communion here, then you would also believe that he's saying you cannot be saved without taking communion, uh, which is the stance that some churches have taken through the years. It's not what we believe is going on here. And so Jesus is talking about something else here, and it says the Jews push back. When he says, I am the bread of life, right, they push back. They don't like it. So I love what Jesus does, right? He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry that this offended you. You know, I'll, let's, let's back up. Let's, I'll take it back. Let's tone it down or make it more socially acceptable. No, Jesus doubles down, and he says, hey, if, if the idea of eating my flesh grosses you out, how about drinking my blood, right? So he just kind of adds a little bit on there, and and so to drink his blood would have been incredibly offensive to the people who were listening to him because the law of Moses for, forbid the consuming of blood and, and even in meat you had to get that blood out of there. And, and blood in that culture was not like we think of blood. And in our culture, when we talk about blood, we're primarily referencing life. We think, you know, you need blood in your veins to keep you alive and stuff. But back then, blood was almost always a reference to death. In that day, if you saw blood, that was just a really bad sign. It usually meant something bad was happening to someone's body, and it usually was a reference to some kind of violent death. Of course, we know that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is referencing his death on the cross, but they don't know that yet. They're not, they're not picking up on the metaphor. Verse 54, and whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, there it is again, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, they're confused. I don't know what he's talking about, but if they had been listening, they would have known, in fact, because verse 54 is, is a parallel to verse um, 40 that we saw uh, earlier. In verse 40, which I think we looked at a few weeks ago, 
Jesus says this, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, and then we have these two phrases we saw in 54, should have eternal life, that's the first one, and I will raise up on the last day. And so what we find is Jesus has already explained it, to eat his flesh and drink his blood is to believe Christ. It's to believe on Christ. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true blood, so it is true drink. So he's saying that, that somehow his flesh and his blood are more real or are, are different than physical bread and, and physical blood. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So now he's going to circle back to the reference they made earlier to Moses and manna that came down from heaven. And Jesus said, you know, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. So he says, you know, remember there was the exodus when God led the Israelites out of Egypt? Remember they were, they were wandering through the desert and they were getting hungry? And so God worked this miracle. It caused this stuff to come down out of heaven every night. It was called manna, which means what is it? And they would collect it in the morning and they would make you know, food out of it. They would eat it. And Jesus says, yeah, that was, by the way, he said that wasn't Moses, that was God who was providing that. But where are those people now? Jesus says, where, where are they? Oh, they're, they're all dead. Why? Well, because it was, just, it was just physical food. Jesus says, what I'm offering you is, is something better than that. Physical food only provides a temporary benefit. Again, we all know this. Y- yesterday I had breakfast, and that was great, but around lunchtime I got hungry and had to eat again, and I ate again in the evening. And this morning I, I didn't get up and, and think, well, you know, I mean, I ate yesterday. I don't need to eat anymore, right? No, we all got up this morning, we're like, I need to eat something. Why? Because that's the nature of physical food. Our body needs it again and again and again. But physical bread, physical food is meant to point us to something Jesus says that's, that's true food, that, that's more real than this. And what he's saying is every time that we eat physical food, we should remember that while it's good to feed our body, there's something even more important than this that we feed our soul. And Jesus says he is the food for our soul. I was thinking, what if we fed our soul every time we fed our body? What if every time we had a meal, we read the Bible, or we listened to some teaching, or we read a spiritual book, or we had a spiritual conversation? What if every time we had a snack, you know, we, we just did something? To, can you imagine the state of our souls spiritually today if we, would, if we would do that, if we would feed our soul the way we feed our our body. James Boyce says this, is Jesus as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is actually much less. Verse 56, Jesus goes on and says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me. That's a big word that we'll see a lot in the Gospel of John, this idea of, of abiding. Uh, and, and I in him. As the, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Uh, abiding describes a particular kind of relationship that Jesus is going to bring up again and again. Theologians call it a mutual indwelling. Right? It means that, that Christ dwells in us when we believe he, he indwells us, he lives in us, and we live in him. 
He talks a lot in the Gospels about what it means for him to abide in us. Paul talks a lot in the epistles about what it means for us to abide in him and how all of that works. But what he's actually saying is simply this. I think a lot of times when we come to the concept of abiding, there's a tendency for us to think, especially when we get into the, the branches and the vines, and all that, that Jesus is saying, here's something you need to figure out. Here's something you need to, I, you know, go, go figure it out. How are you going to abide in me? How are you going to stay connected to me? And I actually think that what he's saying here is that this is a work of God. That abiding is a work that God does in us. How is it that, that Jesus comes to abide in us? Because of the work of Christ. How is it that we come to abide in him? Again, I believe that this is because of the work of the, of the Spirit in us. And he's saying that when we believe in him, he brings about an abiding relationship. And now, as scripture will say again and again, now walk in that relationship, live in that relationship. And so he talks about this coming from the living father. Now he's referred to God as the father before, but here he talks about the living father. And he does it for a reason. He's trying to, trying to kind of point us in a direction. Sometime in eternity past, as some theologians will discuss it, there was a council of the Trinity in which it was discussed how they would redeem humanity. And it was determined that God the Father would send the Son who would come and be born in flesh and, and that somehow, in a way that I really don't fully understand, um, the Father would give life to the Son. And then somehow the Son, Jesus says later on, will have life in himself. And everyone who believes in the Son will be given life from the Son that comes from the Father. But we will never have life in ourselves independently. We will always be dependent upon the Son. Going on in verse 59, he says this. Now Jesus said these things in the synagogue. So we're giving a little context here. As he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said... And here's the key. They said, this is a hard saying. That some translations say, these are hard words. Who can listen to this? Now, there's a, a context or a transition that happens in John chapter 6, where we tr transition from um, just crowds that are described at the beginning of the chapter as crowds who come and listen to Jesus and are fed by Jesus and pursue him to now where they're, be, they're being called disciples. This right here isn't referring to the 12 disciples as we often call them, or apostles. This is a much larger crowd. The word disciple, mathetes in the Greek is a generic word. It was used in a lot of different contexts in those days. It described roughly someone who attached himself to a teacher. It could be a religious teacher or a philosophy teacher. It could be someone who teaches science, even people who would teach uh, politics. It, this is someone who, who made themselves voluntarily a student or a learner uh, of another person. But it's been noted that it doesn't imply anything about the disciple's sincerity or devotion. They're just simply a, a learner. A disciple in this context isn't necessarily a believer, as we'll see. In the same way that just, you know, coming to church on Sunday morning doesn't make you uh, a believer. Now, John chapter 6 begins with a large crowd of people, like maybe tens of thousands of people who are following Christ from place to place, and they regard him as a teacher who's important enough to follow him around. They're listening to his teaching. They're discussing what he's saying. We know that amongst themselves. But they're drawn primarily to the miracles 
and the free lunches, and they think maybe in him they have a political Messiah. And as long as they perceive Jesus to be a, a source of, of healing and food and deliverance potentially from their enemies, it says that many kind of disciples in a generic sense are, are drawn to him. But now something's changed. Now something's happened. It says now some of these disciples are offended by him. They're offended by his hard teaching. That word hard there means harsh or offensive. It means to cause an adverse reaction on the part of someone else. And so Jesus has been increasingly doing this, saying things to the crowd that you know, we talk about all the time here. And, and I can say these things, and you probably won't bristle at any of them. He claimed to be God in the flesh. We say that all the time here. You probably hear it and go, it sounds good. They were thinking like, what? How can he be God in the flesh? He'd say things like, I am the only bread from heaven that can bring spiritual life to your soul. Or, you know, he'd say, you have to believe in me or submit to him or, or to his teaching. And this was offensive to them. It was hard for them to accept these were spiritually proud people. And Jesus is basically saying, you don't have life in yourself. You cannot earn your way to God. You must humble yourself and accept by grace a gift that God offers you. And that was too hard for them. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, right? He knows their heart. He says to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus says, are you offended by my words? I like what R.C. Sprawl says about this. He says, there is a difference between an offense given and an offense taken. Many times we take offense at things people do or say when no offense was, was given. We simply don't like what was done or said. We may feel insulted when actually, in all reality, no one has insulted us. That kind of thing happens in the church all the time, and it does. Jesus hasn't said anything offensive. He's merely spoken truth. Jesus says, if you find my words hard, if you find my words offensive, you might want to hold on because you ain't seen nothing yet, right? He's going to say, what are you going to do when you see me ascend back to where I came from? Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. I existed before I you know, came into this world, and I will go back to heaven where I came from. And what will you do if you see that happening? What will you do with your faith? What will you do to your offense then? It's been said that ascending uh, is a process for Christ that probably includes three phases. There's, uh, there's being lifted up on the cross, right? And then... Um, there is being lifted up from the grave, and then there is this ascension up into heaven. But for the Jews, the idea of a Messiah, the idea of a, of a leader, of a savior, of the identity of the nation being lifted up on a cross and nailed to that cross, which was scandalous and humiliating, to be like, for them, that would be in a, as offensive as it could possibly be. Jesus goes on and he says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Truly believing Jesus means believing Jesus' words. You cannot do one without the other. You can't believe in Jesus and, and, and just skip all the stuff you don't like. I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like the deity, I don't like that part. It's not how it works. Even the stuff that's hard to accept or, or hard to understand. 
Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus knew who would believe. Jesus knew who would not believe. None of it was a surprise to him. And he says something interesting here. He basically says that the primary agent of faith is the Father. That faith in us begins with God. This would have been a hard teaching for them, and it's still a really hard teaching for many people today. You know, sometimes I, I hear people say, I, I don't believe in a God who chooses, who elects, who will have faith. Um, I think everyone is free to make their own choice, to use their incredible intellect and spirituality to decide, um, you know, whether or not they will believe in Jesus. But when you read the Bible, um, the Bible basically describes people who are, are outside of Christ as being dead in their sin. Now, why would it describe us as being dead? Well, because it's a great picture of what it's like to be outside of Christ. Right? What do we know about dead things? Well, we know they're dead, right? It's not rocket science. Dead things don't decide suddenly to come back to life. They don't decide one day, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually smarter than that. I, there's a whole lot of dead things, but I'm smarter than most of them, and I think, you know, I'll just choose to come back to life. It's not the way that it works. It says somehow that the Father is instrumental in, in coming to faith. And this, this is hard. Hard to accept. Hard to understand. I'll be the first to admit, I don't really understand it. You know, I read scriptures that, that talk about it. I read other scriptures that say, you know, for God so loved the world that, right, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I believe that. I believe that anyone who places their faith in Christ will be saved. I also believe somehow that, you know, God is involved in this choosing electing. I, people who are on this side always tell me that I'm compromising. People over on this side tell me I'm compromising. I just, I just try to stick with scripture. I don't understand it all. But notice what Jesus says in the next verse. Or what the passage says. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And they no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And so now Jesus turns from the disciples in general, hundreds, maybe thousands, to just the twelve. It's the first time that they're referred to as, as the twelve. And Simon Peter pipes up as he was... Uh, you know, often did. It says, Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter doesn't deny that Jesus' words are hard. He doesn't say that he understands it all. He simply says you have the words of life. They are truth and they are life and they are reality. And regardless of whether they are hard or offensive or soothing, Peter just says, what other choice do we have ironically a huge crowd of people just decided they in fact had another choice their choice was to pick up the remote and to skip it now here's the thing a lot of people in this crowd they're not just never coming back they're just skipping they're tired of all this talk about the bread of life but they'll be back some of them will be back for the feeding of the four thousand some of them undoubtedly will, will be there when during the triumphal entry and you know, be throwing down palm leaves and saying Hosanna. They just don't want this right now. They don't want to hear this, and so they want to just skip forward. Peter says, we have believed and we come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's the emissary of God. He is God in the flesh who came 
from heaven, who lived a perfect life, who will go back to heaven, who is the revelation of God, and he is the life. And so we have John chapter 6. But before we go on to chapter 7 next week, I just want to ask the question, so what? What do we do as we come to the end of this chapter? Well, a couple things. And the first couple are going to be like, yeah, don't we say this every week? And the answer would be, pretty much. Uh, First of all, eat the living bread. Okay, so just believe Jesus. So I I think it was R.C. Sproul who used to say this. I'm not talking about believing in Jesus. I'm talking about believing Jesus. And those are two different things. Lots of people believe in Jesus in a generic sense. And, you know, that's what this, this crowd did. They believed in this office of Messiah. And maybe Jesus, was, they believed in their idea of who Jesus should be. But they didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus as he revealed himself to be. That's what this crowd just wouldn't do. They believed in the idea of him. They believed in a leader who would work miracles for them and provide meals for them and maybe bring political victory for them, but they were offended at the things he actually said. They didn't believe him. If you don't believe in Jesus as he has revealed himself, then you don't believe Jesus. I know those are hard words, but you can't just make up an idea of who Jesus is in your head and think that's how it works. So my question is this, have you eaten of the bread of life? What does it mean to eat of the bread of life? It means to believe. Have you believed in Christ as he has revealed himself? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you're trying to be a good person or if you're a church member. I'm asking, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe that he was God as he said he was? Do you believe that he lived a perfect life in your place, as Scripture says? Do you believe that his words are words of truth, every one of his words, that he died for your sin, that he rose, that he conquered sin and conquered death? Have you eaten the living bread? Because if you haven't eaten the living bread, then the next two points don't really, they're not that important. We ought to just get this first one taken care of. And I would say that when I'm done preaching in a couple minutes, it'll just be a couple minutes. When this service is over, you need to come find me or someone, maybe somebody you came with so that we can pray with you so that you can make that decision to eat living bread. Having said that, here's the second thing. You need to seek words of life. Seek words of life. In verse 68 again, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. If we are to grow in our understanding of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him, then we need to get his words into our head and into our heart. And again, you might be thinking, isn't this like point two in every sermon every week? Pretty much, it pretty much is. We need to read God's word to us because it is the revelation of God to us. We need to make time every day because it's that important. We make time to eat meals today, right? Maybe you have two or three or second breakfast. I don't know what you have, right? In the same way that we make time to eat for our body, we need to feed our soul. How do we do that? By getting into the word of God. There's no magic formula for how to read the Bible. Just read the Bible or when to read it. Some people are like... Yeah, do I have to read in the morning? Do I have to read it at night? The answer is yes, whatever works for you. Or how long? You know, if you're not reading the Bible at all right now, five minutes might be great. Ten minutes might be better, right? Uh, what translation should you read? Find a translation that makes sense to you, that's easy for you to read. Underline it if that helps. Read it slowly. This is not a race, right? Read it slowly. Take it in. Ponder it. 
right? Think of, take a verse with you as you go through your day and, and think about it. And, and by the way, not just the words of Jesus, but all of Scripture, because all Scripture is about Jesus. We read that a little while back in John 5. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me. The entire Bible points us to Jesus Christ. Genesis 1 in creation points us to Jesus. Genesis 3 in the fall points us to Christ. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph point us to Christ. The burning bush, Moses, the Exodus, the Red Sea, right, the, the Ten Commandments, manna from heaven, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, and on and on and on and on. All those things teach us things about Jesus. He said it all points to him. So read it all and ask, what does this teach me about Jesus? Meditate on it. Talk to other people about it. Make it as important as breakfast, lunch, and dinner to you. You can listen. We live in a great day. You can listen to the Bible on your phone. You have your phone read it to you, right? You can look at, uh, look at sermons on YouTube. You can read books on it. You get the idea. Read it. Read it. Read it. And believe it. And here's the last point. Okay, last point is kind of where we started. Don't skip it. I right? Don't fast forward through the Word of God. The stuff you don't like, the stuff that's hard to grasp, and I would suggest to you that I know many of us, maybe we're sitting here this morning going, I'm not like that, I don't have one of these, I'm not doing this, but you probably are. Let me just help you a little bit. We'll think about this. Don't skip what Jesus said about his deity. Like, that's a good place for us to start. Right? How could he be God and man? How could he be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? How does that all work? I don't know. I have questions about it. I think about it all the time, you know? Like, I, like when Jesus was born, did he, was he already thinking full thoughts? Did, did someone have to teach him how to ride a bike? Did he already know how to do that? Did he come out speaking full sentences? Did he already have command of languages? What did he know? What did he not know? I don't know. Was he omniscient when he was born? Was he, you know, how, how was he sovereign? How does that work in human history? And I don't know all of it, but I tell you what, but I don't skip it. I believe by faith what Scripture says about Christ. Don't, don't, don't skip the whole grace thing. I, grace is one of those things, we talk about it all the time, and yet I find it so difficult for so many of us. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by good works. You know, how often do we fall back and, and, and try to earn God's favor by being good enough? And we fall into that trap and that legalism. But we are saved by, by grace, by, by faith. Don't skip that. How about dying to self? Here's a good one, right? Dying to self, that's a hard teaching, dying to self, right? Because we live in a world that tells us all the time, no, 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 it's all about finding yourself, right? Life is all about, you know, you do you. You find you, you be true to you. Jesus comes along and goes, nah, you need to die to all that, right? How many of us have just skipped through that, right? We're like, no, 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 no. I want to be all I can be. Come on, Jesus, right? How often do we skip? How many times do we hear a sermon on dying to self and we, we just die a little bit more today? Mm. A lot of times, what is it for us? How can I get Jesus to give me what I want? How can I get him to get on board with, with, you know, with my agenda for my life? How about the exclusive, I can never say that word, the exclusive gospel. <laughs> I've written down and I can't even read it. The exclusive gospel, right? Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. How many times have we been like, well, there's probably other ways and there's probably other religions and, you know, as long as someone's sincere, right? That's what our world says. How about judgment? 
right? How many of us skip through judgment? I hear it all the time. Oh, pastor, I like teaching about heaven. Please don't talk about hell. I think it was on Easter I mentioned the word hell and somebody came up and said, I can't believe that you just said that word in church. It's like, judgment. (laughs) Yeah. How about putting away sin? Right? Go and sin no more. How about serving? How many of us when we hear, right? Because we talk about serving all the time. How many of us just skip through that? I don't want to hear about that. That takes time. That takes effort. Right? How many of us have been like, I know I'm supposed to serve, but I'm not I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. How about a command to love? Again, I think most of us, we, we approach love the way we approach forgiveness. We can probably say, I forgive and I love about most people. 97%, you know. But there's 3%. Man, they're so hard to love or if you knew what they did to me. Jesus didn't say, you know, love 97% of them. He said, love them all. He said, forgive them all. How many of us just skip through? I'm not skipping through the whole command, just three percent of it right how about generosity right how about anger I, I during covid i was shocked to discover how much anger exists in the church how much anger is just right below the surface and how quickly it came out when there were things people didn't like mass or no mass or vaccines or no vaccines or whatever it was there was so much ang- and you know what concerns me is i don't know that it went away I think the context has just changed a little bit. How about sexuality? How about what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage? Lots of people skip that. Lots of Christians skip that. Oh, that's so like 1990, right? (laughs) How about honoring your parents? I'm a parent, so I can say that. How about the the sanctity of life? Heard a lady on NPR the other day talk about how offended she is by Christians. How dare they say how dare they say that abortion is a sin? How about submitting to spiritual leaders? Did you know the Bible says we're to submit to our spiritual leaders? Do you know that's pretty much skipped today? You know how we do that? Pastor said something I don't like, held me to something I didn't like. Well, let's go to another church. We do it all the time. It happens all the time. We don't want to submit ourselves to anyone. Don't like what he said. I'll just go somewhere else. How about humility? In a culture that prides itself on pride and self-promotion, how many of us get up every morning and go, you know, my goal today is just to be, walk as humbly as I can possibly walk and to be a servant today, right? You say, well, I don't know about today, but that's, Jesus taught that again and again and again. How many of us skip that? or putting other people before ourselves, or, or how about fellowship? Don't neglect the gathering together of the saints, but we're like, yeah, it's hard, or I'm an introvert, or people are just annoying, or, you know, I'm busy, or I don't want to sacrifice any of my time. How about sharing the gospel, right? How many weekends do we come, and we hear about sharing the gospel, we, we, we read a devotional on sharing the gospel, we read our Bible on sharing the gospel, and we just skip it. Like, we never say that. We'd never say, well, I'm skipping that, pastor, but we don't do it. So yeah, we're skipping it. When his teaching is hard, don't skip it. Read his word. Pray about it. Wrestle with it. Get some wise input. Talk about it. Sometimes you, sometimes you just have to take it by faith, don't you? Right? Sometimes you just have to say, God said it, and so I guess that's what I'm going to believe, even if I don't understand it. Right? I have a whole list of 
hard teachings I'm wrestling with, but I don't just pull this up and skip everything I don't like. Here's a big question after you this morning. What teaching of Jesus do you need to stop skipping and start embracing? Where do you need to get rid of this thing? Where do you need to start not just believing in Jesus? Where do you need to start believing Jesus? I want to pray for us, and next week we'll get on to chapter 7, which hopefully will be a little less offensive. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for our time this morning. I know, uh, yeah, it's been a long morning. I, I pray all the same. Father, I pray for our hearts. I pray that we would have ears to hear. Father, I pray for anyone who walked in here this morning having never eaten the bread of life right here and right now in this moment right now right if that's you you can just just tell jesus that you believe him that you believe what he said that you believe that he is god in the flesh that you believe that he lived a perfect life in your place that he died for you on the cross that in doing so he conquered sin and he conquered death and by believing, your sins have been forgiven. Just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you shall be saved. And Father, I pray for us this morning, if there's any of us in here who we've been skipping, <laughs> something Jesus said, something your word says, that this morning we would repent of that. Right? The word repent means to change our thinking that we will repent of that and that we will believe Jesus, that we will believe your word and that we will stop skipping and begin to embrace the truth that you have given to us. Father God, lead us through those hard sayings, those hard things. Give us grace, give us wisdom. Help us to live by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.